0: Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange, stories by leaders for leaders, to help you to raise the bar on your own performance and to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's episode. Greetings, everyone. This is Hugh Blue, back for another episode of the Nonprofit Exchange. You can find it at the, that's T-H-E, nonprofitexchange.org. We have almost 300 episodes, some amazing people telling us amazing stuff. And they think it's just matter of fact because it's what they do. It's stuff we need to know. It's the business of leading and operating a nonprofit organization. And it is, in fact, a business that has a lot more rules than a for-profit business. It's a for-purpose enterprise. And um, I'm sitting in Virginia today, and I have a new friend, Peter Docker, who's in Oxford, near Oxford, England. So, Peter, welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange, and tell people a little bit about who Peter Docker is and what's your passion.
1: Well, thanks, Hugh. Thank you for having me on your, your podcast. It's fabulous to be here and join across the ocean there. Um, so, I'm Peter. I uh, have, well, I started life in the Royal Air Force. Uh, I was a, an Air Force officer for 25 years, a pilot. I also did many other things as well. I was a negotiator for the British government when the Berlin Wall came down, negotiated with Russia. I've negotiated with your State Department on projects and export licensing. I've run multi billion dollar programs. I've taught at the Defense Academy on leadership here in the UK. I've worked in consulting around the world, and well, for the past seven or eight years, I've been sharing various messages on leadership uh, around the world. I think I've visited 93 countries and worked with uh, all three digits of of companies around the world. Some people might recognize my name because I was co-author with Simon Sinek and David Mead on the book, Find Your Why, which um, has sold about half a million copies. So that's out there. Um, but most recently, I, uh, well, I stepped away from time about two years ago to, to focus on sort of what's next. And most recently, I've put together all of my ideas and what I've learned over the past well, 30 plus years uh, into a new book, which is called Leading from the Jump Seat. So uh, my passion at the moment is sharing those ideas with as many people as I can, because I think well, the feedback I've got is that it helps us lead regardless of whether we're leading a non whether we're leading a big um, industry around the world, or actually one of the biggest leadership challenges I've found is bringing up kids as a parent. So, you know, it applies to all of that, and it's a how-to book. So that's my passion, sharing what I've learned, mistakes and all, and uh, helping other people to learn from it.
0: Yay, I reclassify mistakes as Learning opportunities, and yeah. sometimes people introduce me on stage as an expert, and I used to go, "No, no, no, I'm a student yeah. of leadership." One day I said, huh, "Baloo, you're 75. You're old enough to make those mistakes and learn from them. So go with it. That's that's where we yeah. get wisdom." So we do have um, a, a classroom watching us from Dallas, Texas area, and so that's that's um, Bob Hopkins, and he's he's um, influencing young leaders uh, around the world. So what is the biggest reason why our our audience is nonprofit leaders and clergy Mm -hmm. all leading a a tax exempt initiative around a purpose with a very, well, they ought to have a very clear mission, but maybe that's one of the problems. So (laughs) why is leadership important to this sector that we're speaking to?
1: Well, I think it's important in any sector, but particularly in the nonprofit sector where you have the opportunity to inspire people, um, to contribute something way more than just money or um, profit. It's about helping other human beings. And for me, that is essentially what leadership is, is all about. Leading from the jump seat is not about expanding or retaining your own power as a leader. It's about creating the space and lifting others up so they can lead, so they can carry forward those things that you feel are really important to you. And that's an inevitability, you know, whether we're running a nonprofit or a CEO of a um, standard sort of organization, or even as a parent, at some stage, Hugh, we step back, don't we? You know, we retire as the CEO, we leave the team, or eventually our children grow up, leave home, and start to lead our own lives. So leading from the jump seat, my passion is all about intentionally leading in a way such that we prepare others so they can lead when we've taken a step back. They can lead and carry forward those things that we feel are really important to us.
0: That's pretty profound. Um, so this this jump seat thing, leading from the jump yeah. seat, would you, now. I remember Winston Churchill said that England and America are two countries separated by common language. (laughs) You were smiling. You knew where that was going. So (laughs) I, you know, we have our own dialect in the South. We have our own own pronunciation. You have a little little nuance on it. So my, my ears are tweaked, but regardless, the words mean a lot and the words lead us to images. So this jump seat, what's the, what's the vision behind that? And why is it important?
1: Well, it it actually stems from my time as a pilot. So I used to fly large passenger jets, Uh, happened to be with the Royal Air Force, but same as the sort of jet that you might go on holiday or vacation on. And leading from the jump seat comes from a story um, some years back now where I was just completing the training of a new captain. So this guy, his name was Callum. And he'd been a first officer, a co-pilot for some years. And he was graduating to become a captain. And he'd been through several months of training. You know, we prepared him for this. But then the final part of his transition was where I came in. And as the very experienced guy, as his senior boss, I flew with him as he uh, acted as captain as we flew from London over to Washington, Dulles, and then on to San Francisco. And San Fran is a very busy airport. And we landed there. And Callum had done a great job. And it was with huge pleasure that I was able to say to him, Callum, fantastic job. I've signed you up. You are now fully certified as a captain. Tomorrow, when we fly back to Washington, I'm going to be down the back with the other 140 passengers. You'll have a regular crew, you know, take us home. And that was a great moment, as you might imagine. He was really pleased. The following morning, just before takeoff, Callum came to me. And he said, excuse me, sir, and he referred to me as sir, because we're in the military and that's just how things are. But he came to me and he said, "Um, it's very busy during rush hour out of San Francisco uh, here this morning. He said, can you come and sit on the jump seat and act as an extra pair of eyes to watch out as we taxi out from this very congested airport to make sure that we go the right, right way and watch out for other aircraft? And I thought that was very courageous of him because he just got me off his back actually, after being checked for so long. Um, So he invited me onto the jump seat. And the jump seat is a seat on the flight deck of most large aircraft, it's usually empty, but a crew member like myself can sit there and you can reach and touch the captain and the the first officer, you're that close. So that's where I sat, great view. And Callum it out to the runway, he he had it covered. He was great. And we got airborne and about 300 feet Above the ground, we had an emergency. And what I chose to do in the next two seconds would dictate whether I and everybody else on board survived or not. And here's the thing, Hugh I did absolutely nothing. I sat there with my hands in my lap, quite calm and relaxed. Because I knew that Callum could handle the situation. and In that moment, I didn't need to show leadership in that way. I needed to become a great follower. And I needed for Callum to feel that I had his back and to stay out of the way so he could do his job you know, big picture, I had no reason to intervene. I'd qualified him, I'd certified him to fly anywhere in the world with an airplane. So why would I intervene? He was perfectly capable, we trained him. What I needed to do in that moment was to take a step back and let him get on and do his job. So that coined the phrase of leading from the jump seat. And it links back to what I said a moment ago, you know, at some stage in life, we will take a step back from being the CEO or leading the team or being the parent you know, we take that step back. And what we had done with Callum was trained him so he was able to take the lead in that critical moment. He had the appropriate confidence, he had the skill set, And what I needed to do was to take that step back. So leading from the jump seat, that's where it came from. And flying aeroplanes is like a microcosm of of leadership. It really is because of the things that you you face on occasion. So uh, does that help clarify things for you, Hugh. Does that bridge the divide?
0: It brings up a lot of ideas. By the way, um, that's that's a book. It's on the uh, the page for your interview, Leading from the Jump Seat, How to Create Extraordinary Opportunities by Handing Over Control. That's mm. a compelling story. I want to dig into what all the details are, but we'll never get, <laughs> get much accomplished if we stay on <laughs> one thing. So it, it just brings up that that's a real big issue, especially... Well, I don't think it's any any particular segment: business, nonprofit, government, education. um, Leaders tend to get their fingers in too many things. So, we um, 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 Murray Bowen, psychiatrist, has eight concepts of leadership, and Mm -hmm. in his his uh, differentiation of self. You know, it's about us not micromanaging, us not interfering with other people. It's about us being clear. So I I see a lot of, over. he calls it over-functioning. And Mm. that's one of the biggest problems I see in leadership. Are you, does that make sense?
1: I totally agree Hugh, And I, I think it's a systemic issue and we're not to blame as such, you know, it's how we're guided. When we go to school when we go to college university we tend to specialize in things we become good at those things we then go into a a job we're hired because of a skill set that we've honed and so we're we're hired on the basis of knowing the answer but then eventually well if we're good we get promoted and suddenly we find ourselves in this place of not being the one with the hands on the controls you know the computer programmer or whatever it happens to be we are now taking care of the people who are doing that And that's a big transition. But here's the thing. If we limit ourselves to being the one who always has to be the guy or the girl with the answer as the leader, the team leader, then we become the constriction in the pipe. So what I'm talking about when I I talk about leading from the jump seat is not just about preparing other people for when you take a step back, retire, move on or whatever it is. It's actually a way of leading that accelerates your team because it's about learning to be comfortable leading when you do not know the answer. And that is a big step up because most of us will, well, our experience and uh, the pressures around us, peer pressure would suggest that we need to know the answer as the person in charge. But actually when we become comfortable leading when we don't know the answer, but instead we're focused on what's our mission? Where are we going? What's the context of the work that we're doing rather than the detail, the context? What's the context of the work? What's the picture on the jigsaw puzzle box? When we focus on that and become comfortable leading when we don't know the answer, and instead we create the space into which other people can step to help us figure it out, then we are no longer the constriction of the pipe and our team, our progress accelerates. The
0: American writer, 100 so years ago, um, Napoleon Hill, um, mm-hmm. interviewed the top most successful leaders in America and developed his theory of success and published it in a number of different books and articles, radio show. But the, one of the common factors with those leaders, they had a very clear vision. They had a positive attitude about doing it. But they also surrounded themselves with very capable people. And yeah. many of those, like Thomas Edison, he, he is the most prolific inventor we had in America, mm-hmm. and he knew he can invent the light bulb. And he said, I found 9,999 things that didn't work, but he ultimately found it. But he did surround himself with other experts, and he was relentless. Yeah. So I, I would say surrounding yourselves with capable people is a very strong leadership position. And I think a lot of leaders think they have to have all the answers, and they don't do that. What are some examples of how people yeah. are in, in a misconception and can get out of that misconception?
1: Well, um, uh, several examples come to mind. So let, let's give me let, let me give you an example that's accessible to everybody. Okay, um, it, it's one of my favorite films, movies, um, and the reason it's such a, a favorite movie of mine is because. It encapsulates a lot of what I, I talk about and write about in Lean from the Jump Seat, and that is the film Apollo 13. Now the film came out in 1995, but um, you and I, you will remember the Apollo um, program in NASA uh, back in the 70s, 60s and 70s, sending um, astronauts to the moon. And Apollo 13 was um, launched in April of 1970, and by which stage, sending people to the moon had become almost commonplace you know and public interest had waned but on the 13th of april 1970 that all changed when two-thirds of the way to the moon the spacecraft had an explosion and it blew out the side of the spacecraft affecting their life support systems their propulsion their oxygen systems electrical systems all sorts and it was something that should never have happened but it did now, the guy in charge at NASA at the time was a fellow called Gene Kranz, and he was 32 years old. He was a Vietnam veteran and a former uh, Air Force pilot. And he was faced with a completely unknown situation. He didn't know the answer as to how to get those three astronauts back safely. On the face of it, they were lost because they were charging away from Earth, still heading towards the moon. And they'd lost the vast majority of essential systems. So he was faced with this impossible, seemingly impossible situation. And he alone did not have the answer. But what he did was create what I call a warehouse of possibility. And he framed what the mission was. The mission changed, the context changed. It changed from putting a couple of astronauts on the surface of the moon to we've just got to get them back all safely to Earth. That was the focus. And he painted that picture very, very clearly. Now, I I know that some people will be listening to this, but um, those of you who can see, you know, what Gene Kranz did when he said, we're gonna bring all those astronauts home safely, he created what I call a a warehouse of possibility. It's like a big empty warehouse with nothing in it. But in the corner, there's an office with a guy in it. And that guy is the chap who says, ah, it can't be done. Yeah. Uh, And he actually, although he's irritating, is very important because he will bring up all the reasons why it can't be done, but then, The people, the very experienced people, in this case on Gene Kranz's team, who are inspired by that possibility of bringing home the astronauts, they come and build their offices in this big empty warehouse. And the first office would represent the solution for, we figured out how to keep those astronauts alive. The second office would be the solution for, we figured out how to turn that spacecraft around. The next office would be, we figured out how to uh, navigate them back to Earth how to get them into orbit around the earth. We've figured out the re-entry problem, the heat shield problem, the parachute problem, all the other different problems they have to solve. And eventually there's no longer any room for this guy who said it can't be done. And he is pushed out of that warehouse. And it's at that moment that your possibility turns into reality.
0: People that are listening on the podcast, uh, I did a couple of screenshots and I will put them on the page. You can go to the nonprofitexchange.org. You can find all the series, but you can look for the leading from the jump seat. And on that page, you'll have the link to his book. And you'll also have a link to his website. And you'll have a couple of screenshots of what he's explaining here. So you won't be left out. Um, now we're, we're recording this um, in the latter part of 2021, November. You might be listening to it at any time. And uh, uh, Peter, these are universal messages. I don't care where you're sitting, I mean, where you're leading from. Uh, yeah. um, author and speaker and priest uh, Richard Rohr says, how we do anything is how we do everything. Yeah. And so what you said, you know, no matter where you are, even even family, even teachers, even nonprofit leaders, Absolutely. It, it's us us showing up. Now,
1: mm.
0: um, my perspective as, as a musical conductor is mm. to have have the roadmap, that's the music. Absolutely. And so people don't know where to go unless they have a place to plug in. That's the overall strategy. And I support transformational leadership as a style of leadership. It's about the vision and mm-hmm. it's about elevating people in the space to, to lead at a higher level. So I find that, that there's a lot of leaders. I, I, there's a lot of early startups, especially in young organizations, And people have brilliant ideas. They want to help people. They want to save the world. They want to do a lot of good stuff, but they haven't really equipped themselves. And so I say, it's like, well, you're going to fly a plane and you've never taken lessons and you're going to crash and hurt a lot of people. So there's the fundamental digging in of of learning about this, this, but, but you write about the love and fear in leadership Mm. Can you say more about that? Because for for people finding their way as students of leadership, talk about that and the challenges in equipping ourselves.
1: Uh, I'm delighted you brought that up, Hugh, because I think it's vitally important. Um, (laughs) Whatever we do in life that's really important to us, everything we do in life that's really important to us is driven by one of two things. It's either driven by fear or it's driven by love. Now, I'll come back to love because when we mention that in a business context, sometimes people will get a bit twitchy uh, around that word but let, let's look at fear first of all <laughs> you know fear is good when it's triggered. you know if we step out onto the road and there's a car coming, fear is what has us jump back and hopefully save our life. And so it can be useful but fear also gets triggered on other occasions too where it's less useful. It gets triggered when we sense, that our livelihood, our status or our reputation is under threat. And when it's one of those things that triggers fear, fear shows up as, well, it can show up as anger. It can show up as a view of the world of scarcity and there can only be one winner and that's gotta be me. Or it can view, uh, show up as um, just thinking about myself. In fact, that's the big one it shows up as ego which is greek as you know for i and we close down thinking about other people is just about me and when that happens particularly in a team um, your your future is not well laid out it is not going to be generative it's not going to be helpful the good news is we always have a choice always and that choice is to be driven by love now In the business context, what love can show up as is, first of all, a worldview of opportunity and possibility rather than scarcity. You know, we don't describe the world we see, we see the world that we can describe. And if we choose to see the world as a place of possibility and opportunity, that will be our experience of it. But instead of focusing on ourselves, we're focusing on other people, how we can serve them, how we can lift them up. And importantly, instead of ego we're being driven by something I refer to as humble confidence. And humble confidence is essential actually for leading when you don't know the answer. Humble confidence is about the humility to listen to others, to get their input, but also having the confidence in our own strengths and the resolute focus on where we're going and being willing to take the decision when the decision needs to be taken. So when we're driven by love, we're guided by humble confidence instead of fear, which generally comes out as ego. And the really neat thing that joins these two together is courage. You know, courage cannot exist without fear, but courage can only be sustained through love. And so when we're passionate about what it is we're in in search of, when we're in service of other people, when we see the world as a place of opportunity, and when we have the humble confidence to lead into the unknown, we are choosing love over fear, and that is sustainable, and that is generative, and that's how we move forward apace.
0: Love it. You talk about drivers. Um, Mm. Something's important enough. How do we tap into the power of drivers?
1: Yeah, I I, I thought a lot about this when I I was writing, because I wanted to differentiate drivers from values, because (laughs) values sometimes aren't as fixed as we might think they are you know if you've ever had to get something in the mail just before the post office shut and you drive and there's only one space in the parking lot and you can see someone out the corner of your eye who's also hunting for a parking space but you grab the one that's left yeah now all of a sudden your value of thinking of others goes out the window because you've got to get your package into the mail yeah So values sometimes can be a little bit tricky, even more so with a company. So what I like to focus on, first of all, the bedrock is what drives us, drivers. And for many people, for example, an an example of a driver, something's really, really deeply important to us is family. You know, a couple of years ago, I had a phone call from my wife. She'd had a car accident just a couple of miles away from where I'm standing now. And nothing would have stopped me going to a raid. I didn't know what I was stepping into, I didn't know what I would find, I didn't know what challenges I'd come across, but I was going and nothing would have stopped me. It lights that fire inside of you to take on the unknown. So it got me thinking, what if we could identify in ourselves other drivers which are deeply rooted to what we find really important to us? We can then harness that energy to overcome the challenges that we find. And For me, drivers start to emerge when we look at the choices that we make. 40 years ago, almost the day, I went to university and I chose to do a degree in computing and electronic engineering. I had no background in those subjects, but the reason I chose them was because my parents were both out of work, we didn't have much money. I thought, well, this is one of the best opportunities to go for to get a well-paid job afterwards. I didn't want to be a financial burden on anybody. I wanted to support others. But halfway through that university course, something else happened, which was the Falkland Islands were invaded, Falkland Islands down the South Atlantic, uh, British territory. And it was nothing to do with the politics for me. I was just became incensed that someone was imposing their will on others. And what started to emerge was something that's deeply important to me, which is mutual respect, respect for one another. And so mid university course, I left university. And that's what drove me to join the Royal Air Force because I felt that that organization, I could be a part of that organization and help others in the future who couldn't help themselves. So, you know, when we look at the choices that we make during our life, they start to point to the things that are deeply important to us. And those things that will drive us, even when we're stepping into the unknown, even when we don't have the answers, but these are our non-negotiables and they form part of our character. So that's what drivers mean to me. And when we gather those drivers together, yes, perhaps they'll turn into values, et cetera. But this is our bad bedrock. The drivers are our bedrock.
0: A, as you're speaking of this, there's a big piece of leadership that's awareness. And unfortunately, it's lacking in many places, but being aware... Uh, of the world around you and what's going on. Um, John Hyder wrote a little book, the, the, the little book called the day of leadership, and it's mm. paying attention to how things happen. He says over and over again. So you're enforcing that piece of leadership, keep your eyes open and pay attention. Um, mm. there's times in my life, life, I, looking back, I wish I had paid attention a little closer. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the learning opportunities that, that I've told you about. So, um, You mentioned ego. What do you mean when you refer to the antidote to ego and how does that relate to empowering the collective genius?
1: Mm. Well, uh, I've touched on that a little bit, you know, ego. It's all about a focus on ourselves, and often that comes from a place of fear, you know, our status, our reputation, our livelihood being threatened. We focus on ourselves. So when I talk about the antidote to ego, it's when we flip from the focus of being driven by fear and instead when we experience fear, choose to interpret that as a warning flag and instead be driven by something from the love side of, um, uh, of our experience. So in this case, I focus in on humble confidence and there's a whole section in the book because this is a practice, um, humble confidence is a practice. So. That is about having the confidence in your own strengths, but the humility to listen to others. And the reason that is so important is because we must have humility in order to engage what I call the collective genius. Just with Gene, as Gene Kranz did with the Apollo 13 crisis, he didn't have the answers, but he knew that his team collectively would have the answers. And he had the humility to say, in effect, look, I don't know the answer to this problem that we're facing, but let me tell you why we've got to figure it out. And in the movie, it came out as um, you know we've never lost an American in space yet, and it's not going to happen in my on my watch. You know, uh, failure is not an option. Now Gene Kras never actually said that, but when he heard it from the screenwriters, he said, mm, "I like that because it captures the whole essence of the culture there." And in fact, he entitled his book about um, entitled his book. Um, with the same words uh, later on. So humble confidence is the antidote, antidote to ego. Um, and it's so important because it's only by having humble confidence that we can lift our people up in our team and they then take responsibility to figure out the challenges we're facing and accelerate us forward through, the, um, through to those solutions that we need.
0: That really clarifies that leaders need to have, like Napoleon Hill, said, and you said a focus, a clear focus on what their goal is, and and, um, I think Henry Ford said, uh, fear is what what happens when we take our eyes off of our goals, Um, so um, now you mentioned mentioned, uh, teams, and so um, my background uh, as a conductor, I know about building high performance teams, Uh, so focusing on a team, and why is it so important? for leaders to nurture a sense of belonging in their team?
1: Mm. Sense of belonging, again, is one of the the key themes in in my book. Because, well, if we take a step back from that, you know, if the goal is to engage the collective genius, and just using the the backdrop that you've got there, if the goal is to engage the collective genius of all those musicians in your, your orchestra, Hugh, you know, you want to give them the space so they can express themselves, in this case, musically, but all in tune with the goal, which is the symphony or whatever it is you happen to be playing and the experience that you're giving to the audience. So when we create that space, and we want people to step up and lead in their own way, we need to have them feel that they belong. You know, I, I give an example of um, one of the biggest leadership challenges that many of us face, certainly parents. How do you get your teenage teenager, son or daughter to put their dirty laundry in the basket? You know, this is now, you can use various carrot and stick methods, yeah, but, Um, Chances are it's not going to be sustainable, you know, but let's shift the context for a moment. Let's just say that the coming weekend, your teenage son or daughter is going out with with their friends and they want their favourite outfit. Chances are they'll put that outfit in the laundry basket, or heck, they might even wash it themselves. And the reason for that is because they want to belong to their group of friends. They want to sense. They want to have that sense of belonging, because when we feel we belong, we're more likely to step up. We're more likely to take responsibility. We're more likely to lead. So, if we're in a position of leadership ourselves, in charge of a group of people, taking care of them, then it's one of our fundamental responsibilities, I believe, to nurture that sense of belonging. And I'll give an example from my background in. 2003, I faced one of my biggest leadership challenges, which was leading 200 people during the Iraq war. And we flew large aircraft, they were air refueling airplanes. We got airborne, we gave fuel to fighter jets. And we're completely unarmed, completely undefended. And we flew around in circles, giving this fuel away. And quite often people were shooting at us from the ground, which became a bit irritating after a while, uh, because it put you off a bit. But, you know, (laughs) that <laughs> I, I, first of all, gave people a very clear picture on the box. What are we doing this for? It's nothing to do with politics. It was because unless we gave that fuel away, completed our mission to the fighter jets, our British American and Australian troops on the ground wouldn't get the air cover they needed and they would die, period. And that's what I said to my people. And so that gave, you know, sometimes management is about handling complexity, but leadership's about creating simplicity. And I created in that moment a very simple, clear picture of where we're heading and what we need to do. Uh, And people stepped up and helped me figure out how we are going to do that. But the sense of belonging was so important. I spent the vast majority of my time checking in with my people, be it the aircraft maintainers or my pilots. And the way that you nurture a sense of belonging is by showing that you care. And showing that you care doesn't actually need to take that long. Often the most significant moments can be the most fleeting of moments. It can be finding the time just to see someone who's not looking quite right, and putting your hand on the shoulder and checking in with them, are you okay? I spent a lot of my time checking in with my folks, um, deployed with me, uh, how the families were back home. You know, I sent three people back because their grandparents were about to, to pass away, and it was so important to get them back, we moved heaven and earth. It's what we did. It showed that we care, and when we show that we care, we do that through true curiosity and interest in the person. And that moment, although it's fleeting, it's like throwing a pebble in the pond, the ripples can go out far and wide, often beyond what we imagine or even know. And when we do this the performance follows you know we were tasked with 479 missions in this 40 year old airplane we flew 479 missions but the most important thing here for me is that all the people i took out to the middle east i brought them home safe um, and what drove me was caring for my people and they could figure out how we needed to do the missions. They were trained, they could figure it out. I just need to nurture that sense of belonging. So they felt inspired to contribute. They knew the role they could play. And they were very clear on what it was, the picture on the jigsaw puzzle box, I call it, where they were going and they could figure out how to bring those puzzle pieces together.
0: I like your soundbite, leaders create simplicity. Yeah. Very profound, very succinct. We're going a little long today because it's such a great topic, and you're you're such a great storyteller. You know, you this vivid picture. So the last piece is the control piece, and I think leaders yeah. that overfunction want control. Now there's the illusion that we're in control. Now I got this little white stick, and I got all these people playing. <laughs> I can guide the process. But the illusion, I'm in control, anything could happen. They could decide to go radical on me. And I really, there's nothing connected to that stick. And yeah. there's a, there's a uh, I forget what it's called in, in, in military. If your platoon doesn't respect you, they're likely to shoot you in the back in combat. And so there's a lot of leaders in corporate America who get shot in the back every day. They don't know it. So yeah. they want to control, but really they can't control. So, so what does it look like to hand over control and do it at scale?
1: Well, um, one of the examples that uh, I, I currently share, and again, I've written about in length in the book, is a retail company. And that company is called ASOS, A-S-O-S. And um, it is a, a, a clothing retail company uh, based in, in London. Um, but an amazing company. They've been around for 21 years. For the past six, they've been led by a guy called Mick Baton, who's just recently stepped back. But they're an incredible company, and this is the reason why. They have something in the region of 450,000 products for sale, 850 brands available in every size you can imagine, and can be delivered to over 200 territories around the world. Each week, they add 5,000 new products to their website it is phenomenal the scale of this and i had the opportunity to go around the asos headquarters in london uh, with nick and it's an amazing experience because <laughs> you, you walk around and it's a creative place there are people sat in groups on the floor doing creative sketches and whatever and you think it's chaos but it's not there is a military precision to the fact that every week they put 5,000 new products on their website. That takes military precision. And here's the kicker for me, the average age of the 4,000 people who work there is just 27. And I was blown away that you could have such creative environment, and yet such discipline and organization. And the reason for that is because ASOS practices inside its business what it stands for outside. And that is they want everyone to feel actually that they belong, to feel they can express who they are, to be their true selves and to bring all of that passion and wonderful individuality to life. They just happen to sell clothes, you know, but they employ that inside their organization too. And they create this culture where everybody cares for one another And they feel they belong, they feel they have their place. The result is that people step up and they lead. Whatever their role, rank, or position in the organization, they're given the opportunity to lead. You know, when Nick um, welcomed new people into the business, he would say, Look, you've been hired, yes, for your skills, but you've been hired for who you are. Bring the best version of that yourself to work every day because that's why we've chosen you to work here people know that they're cared for they know they belong and the results follow so this works at scale and it works in a business context too
0: that's phenomenal so it's peter peter docker he's in england but looks like you're all over the place um, yeah. And his book is, is on the website, nonprofitexchange.org It'll lead you to his page, ultimately, Leading from the Jump Seat. Um, it ought to be mandatory for any leader, even if you're leading a very small community nonprofit. The work you do is significant. Absolutely. Uh, so what's a final thought or challenge you'd like to leave with uh, nonprofit leaders and clergy today?
1: Well... Leadership starts with the person in the mirror, doesn't it? Um, you know, if we, if we want to lead better, then it starts with learning to lead yourself. And I'm still learning that, you know? And what I would say here is that we are not perfect, none of us. So this is not about making mistake, uh, avoiding making mistakes. It's about accepting those mistakes, accepting when we trip up. But importantly, it's our intention and the trend that matters to me. So our intention, are we source ourselves from a place of fear or we're choosing to sort ourselves from a place of love? That's the intention piece. And the trend piece is no matter, you know, the mistakes we make along the way or the wrong turns, if we're heading generally in the direction we wanna be heading in, then that's good. So it all starts with the person in the mirror and we all have that opportunity to uh, find the courage to leave fear behind. And be sourced and driven by love.
0: Peter Docker, we were privileged to have you tell these great stories on the Nonprofit ex- Exchange. Thank you so much My for absolutely. being our guest today. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Hugh. Been a great pleasure. Bye bye for now.
0: Thank you for listening to the Nonprofit Exchange.